He is risen. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're making your way to the end of the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter, I want you to imagine, if you will, living in a culture that is dominated by paganism. This is a culture where Christianity is mocked and maligned and marginalized. This is a a culture where you are slandered and ridiculed and simply made fun of because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to consider a culture like that, does it? We're living in it. We're in the midst of that kind of a culture. But in the light of that, I want to have you rewind a couple thousand years and think about A.D. 64. There's a photograph on the screen before you that depicts a fire that breaks out in the city of Rome in A.D. 64 during the reign of Nero. The city burned, if you can believe it, for six days and six nights. Some actually blamed Nero for torching the city, and as a result, they opposed his leadership. And like many modern-day politicians, Nero attempted to shift the opinion polls. You know how that works, right? He went to the Fox News of the day. He went to CBS. He went to MSNBC. And he sought to shift the blame on, you guessed it, the Christians. And so this false accusation led to really a horrible time of persecution for followers of Jesus Christ in the days of the first century. Listen to the words of one historian. He said, quote, many Christians were even crucified. Some were sewn up in the skins of wild beasts. Then big dogs were let loose upon them and they were torn to pieces. He goes on to say that people were tied to mad bulls and dragged to death. And after nightfall, Christians were burned at the stake in Nero's garden. Close quote. Now, I've read accounts of people who were there during this portion of Rome's history, and they could see in the evening lights all through the city. And those lights were the Christians who had been impaled on these stakes and lit up for all to see. Christians were not only mocked and maligned, they, as I've already indicated, were executed in the first century, all because they were followers of the God-man, all because they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the helpful context of Peter's letter that we will explore for a few minutes today. Now, despite the, the absolute horrific conditions in this region, The Apostle Peter's letter is bursting with hope. Sometimes as followers of Jesus, sometimes as Christians, I believe that we take hope for granted. Sometimes we forget, even in our generation, that millions of people are living a life all around the globe that is anything but hopeful. Some people put on a good front. Some of you are here this morning. You put on a good front. You appear as if you're living a hopeful life. You throw yourself into your career. You throw yourself into your hobbies. You you invest time in your relationships. You invest time in your religion, your philosophy, or even your philanthropy. philanthropy. You, You take time. You spend money to help others in the community. But at the end of the day, without Jesus, you're still without hope. One of the leading Christian minds, I believe, in our generation is a man by the name of Robbie Zacharias. He recently published a book entitled The Logic of God that addresses 52 penetrating questions about the Christian worldview. Listen to what Ravi says. He says it is because of the unbearable emptiness that people with a philosophy of life that offers no hope and no answers. One writer says it like this and and see if you can sense the the 
the worldview that is absolutely hopeless. He says this, human destiny is an episode between two oblivions. Can you imagine believing that? That human destiny is an episode between two oblivions. Now, the Bible steps in and offers our true condition. The true condition of every person who comes into this world. There are three things that describe this condition. The Bible says first in Romans 5.12 that every person is a sinner by nature and choice. You say, but pastor, I didn't choose to become a sinner. That would be incorrect. You did choose to become a sinner, but you are also a sinner because of your father, Adam. And so we are rendered as people who are sinners by nature and choice. Simply put, we have a big problem on our hands. Number two, the Bible says that every person has exchanged the truth of God for a lie or literally the truth of God for the lie. Romans chapter 125. And then finally, every person, the Bible says, has failed to glorify God. They have rejected God. They have disobeyed God. And as a result, they stand guilty before a holy God. And they also fall under his holy wrath. Every time I have the opportunity to share my faith, every time I have the opportunity to share the gospel, to to speak of the good news, the framework in my mind is that this, this man, this woman, this boy, this girl that I'm communicating these claims to is a sinner by nature and choice. This is a person who has embraced the lie. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is a person who has failed to glorify the great God of the universe. And as a result, I realize I'm talking to a person who is under the almighty wrath of God. Listen, that is missing in our evangelism today. It is missing. We need to remember that every sinner is currently under the wrath of God if they have not yet received grace. Now, the Apostle Peter, as he writes in chapter 1, he understands these facts. He understands and embraces these realities. And he steps in with a mighty message of hope. If you see these three realities about our true condition, I think you would all agree, whether you're a Christian or not, that... Wow, this person needs hope. This person needs to be delivered. And so that's exactly what Peter does. He provides hope for guilty people. If you have come here this morning and in the size of of the group that we have today, there is no doubt in my mind that someone has come with a load of guilt And you know what you've done, you know what you've thought, but you've come on Easter Sunday and you've come with a load of guilt. If that's you, then Peter has good news for you. If you are burdened with the crushing reality of sin, if sin has you by the throat, you say, I can't stop sinning. And I realize I cannot obey God. I cannot cannot love God. I cannot worship God. I can scarcely sing the songs. In this sanctuary, if that describes you in your life, then Peter has incredibly good news for you. Do you realize that suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States of America? On average, adjusted for age, the annual U.S. suicide rate increased 24% between 1999 and 2014. From 10.5 to 13 suicides per 100,000 people, the highest rate recorded in the last 28 years. You see, something is wrong in our country. Something has gone awry. If you acknowledge that we live in a world that is drowning in hopelessness, if you acknowledge that we live in a country that is drowning in hopelessness, if you acknowledge that we live in a, in a county that is drowning in hopelessness, then Peter has good news for you. The title of the message this morning is A New Life, Living in Light of the Resurrection. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read our passage today. We'll be reading in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
and be looking closely at verses 3, 4, and 5. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Will you pray with me? Father, we're excited to celebrate on this day. Uh, we, we are cognizant of the fact that, that Jesus is alive, that he is uh, seated at your right hand, that he is ruling and he is reigning, ordaining everything that comes to pass. Lord, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior. I recall the words that we spoke a few nights ago at the Good Friday service that if we were to visit the tomb or the grave of any world religious leader, all we would find are the remnants of a body or worms who have eaten that body. But we thank you that when we examine the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ, all we find is emptiness because he's gone. You have raised him from the dead. He's exalted highly. And ruling and reigning at your right hand. So thank you for what we continue to celebrate today. And as the title of the message states, may we live in light of the glorious reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My prayer today, God, is that someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus would, would leave this room and be able to say, today is the day when I have turned from my sins and I have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the new leader of my life. He's the savior of my life. He's the boss. He is the, the risen savior who has saved me from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And one day will release me from sin's very presence. Thank you, God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. 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 In the passage before us, Peter the apostle is, is building on what he has previously written in verses 1 and 2. Here we learn that the Trinity, the triune God, is harmoniously bringing salvation to the people of God. I want to have you look at that with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and notice the, the interplay, the, the harmony, the, the teamwork, if you will, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the author of this book, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, imagine, put on your imagination caps, and imagine you're in the first century and you have seen the lights in the city. You have seen those who have been not only tortured, but those who have been executed for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one morning you receive this letter and Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Have you ever received a letter that encouraged you so much that you broke down in tears? I think that's exactly what's happening here. If, if we were all Christians in this first century and we received this letter from Peter, there is no doubt that many of us would be overwhelmed with emotion. Our heads in our desks and overwhelmed with tears. Now, Peter continues as if, and this is the way I visualize it, visualize it as if he's seated on a barrel of gunpowder. Are you with me on this one? Here he is, the Apostle Peter, seated on a barrel of gunpowder. Why? Because he is bursting with excitement. He is exploding with praise and worship for the living God. And here's what he's doing. He's praising God for the doctrine of election. 
He's praising God because he knows were it not for the doctrine of election, he never would have chosen God. You say, I can't believe we get a message on election on Easter. Well, that's the context of this message as Peter sits on this this barrel of gunpowder. He's praising God for the doctrine of election. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this about the doctrine. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. Amen to that. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. Amen to that because he got to know me and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Close quote. We have the context. Now go to verse 3. I want to have you look with me just for a moment at the very first word in verse 3. It's the word blessed. It comes from a Greek word that means to to praise. It means to, to speak well of someone. Here's a few ways the verse appears in the pages of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Remember, it's speaking well of someone, praising someone. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Luke chapter 1, 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one, Paul says, the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever. Ephesians 1, 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice in 1 Peter 1, 3, that Peter's attention is, is riveted. It is fixated on the Father as he praises him, as he blesses him, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My hope, my prayer on this Easter Sunday is that we unpack, as we unpack these verses together, that all of us would be filled with the same kind of worship that we see expressed here by the Apostle Peter. May each of us exalt the Father as we enter into the heavenly gates and praise him not only for who he is, but as we praise him for what he has done. I want to give you the truth point in advance this morning. This is, if you're a guest this morning, the truth point is my way of saying, if you forget everything else, this is what you should remember. This is what, by the way, moms and dads, this is what you should be asking your children at lunch. Johnny, Susie, what was the truth point? I have no idea. Well, next week, keep your eyes And your attention on the truth point. It's very simple, but it's very important. The truth point is this. Guilty people. Guilty people need new life. That is, guilty people need to be awakened. Guilty people need to be liberated. Guilty people need to have their hearts changed. They need to live in a new realm that is completely filled with a new set of priorities. Our task then, as we look at verses 3, 4, and 5, is to examine two pillars. And the first pillar is this. Pillar number one is the the reality of the new life. What's it all about? Pillar number two is the results of the new life. So first of all, the reality of the new life. The way I want to have you understand that new life is to see what is referred to by theologians as the doctrine of the new birth or the doctrine of regeneration. Look again at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father. By the way, what's Peter doing? He's sitting on this this power keg, right? He's excited. He's bursting with energy. He's bursting with worship. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you hear Peter just going, Woo! That's what's going on here, right? His hands got to be shaken. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's worth highlighting. 
to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That little phrase, born again, means this. It means to regenerate. To regenerate. And there are six truths concerning the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth that I want to explore with you. And as I was studying for this sermon, this is exactly what popped into my mind. These are six truths that should take our breath away. You think about something that takes your breath away. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but my suspicion would be this. If I looked upon the Grand Canyon, it would take my breath away. Now, this is much less significant than the Grand Canyon, but I'll never forget the first time I went to what is now Safeco Field. What is it now? Why did they do that to us? What's it called? T-Mobile. The Pink Stadium. Thank you very much. I'll never forget when it was Safeco Field. The first time I walked in. Is anyone with Gary? You walk in. There's a chandelier made of baseball bats. My breath's already. I'm just, wow. And then you smell the food. Someone get me an oxygen mask, right? Well, that was nothing. And then you walk from the concourse. You're behind home plate and you look out in the field and you can already smell the grass. You can smell the popcorn. You see the people milling around and there it is. First base, second base, third base, home plate. Someone call an EMT, right? It took my breath away. Now, the doctrine of regeneration is is a million times more significant than a baseball field. And so just imagine what is, what is flowing through the mind of Peter as he is exploding with praise about the ministry of God and drawing people to himself. These are truths that should blow us away and take our breaths away. Six of them. Number one, God regenerates guilty hearts. We could stop right there and you, you should be able to walk away and say, that, that is one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. That God regenerates guilty hearts. There's a theologian who has been very influential in my life for almost 40 years. He lives in Vancouver, B.C. His name is J.I. Packer. And here's what Dr. Packer says about this doctrine. He says, regeneration is the spiritual change fashioned in the heart of people by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. It extends to the whole nature of man, altering his governing disposition, illuminating his mind, freeing his will, and renewing his nature. That should make you so excited. If you understand who you are apart from grace that you're a sinner by nature and choice, that you are under the wrath of a holy God because you failed to glorify him, to hear about this great doctrine of regeneration and hear that God regenerates guilty hearts. He's in the business of regenerating guilty hearts. It should just cause, cause your, your head to land on your desk. You should be overwhelmed with emotion. The scripture says this, it's God alone who regenerates the guilty human heart. I want to read three scriptures for you. You don't need to turn there, but meditate on these together and hear the doctrine of regeneration. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Do you hear the new birth? Do you hear regeneration? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Do you hear the doctrine? It's the doctrine of regeneration. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This set aside, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Some of you have come to church this morning, and if you don't have anything on your vanity plate, on your car, you should. It should be G-U-I-L-T-Y, guilty. Some of you aren't acknowledging that yet, but some of you, by God's grace, I believe, are. And you realize as you came to church, you're, you're guilty. You're under the wrath of God. And now you hear the good news that God made us alive together with him. He's talking about Christians, not non-believers, Christians. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Last week, I shared a story about a, a young man that I met at a coffee store. And we engaged for just a few minutes about the subject of theology. And I asked him where he went to church. And he said, well, I'm going to a Presbyterian church, but I'm getting ready to transfer to, and he named the church. It was an XYZ church. It's a church that believes that you're saved by faith plus what you do. And all I said is, I'd love to talk to you more about that someday. Very disciplined. Because I wanted to jump over the counter and give him a big hug and say, don't do it. Don't do it. Listen to this verse. That when God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But I'm going to go to this church that believes that we're saved by grace plus what I do. Don't do it. Don't do it. Notice that there is no human cooperation at the point of regeneration. God is wholly active. Sinners are wholly passive. 1 Peter 1, 3. This is something that I might have read, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I might have read hundreds of times as a boy, as a teenager, as a student in Bible college. And if I'm honest, probably as a freshman a sophomore, a junior, and most likely a senior. It wasn't till about the time I met my lovely bride that I began to wrestle with some of these realities. And for the first time, I read it the way it was meant to be read. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. For all these years, I believe that the notion that I believe, and as a result of my belief, God regenerates me. You know, the, the scripture never says that. The scripture says, he caused me. He caused you to be born again. Would you turn with me? Hold, hold your finger in First Peter chapter 1 and go to the gospel of John. Because this is another section of scripture I remember memorizing as a little boy. I, I was probably eight or nine years old when I memorized John chapter 1, verse 12. And many of you know this by memory as well. It goes like this. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that a marvelous verse? Do you know I never memorized verse 13? And in the context, John says, who were born, guess what doctrine that points to? Regeneration. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, that is the free will of man, but of, someone yell it out, God. In other words, when you get regenerated, you get acted upon, right? You get acted upon. God, the Holy Spirit, sovereignly regenerates his people. He regenerates guilty hearts. There's a second great reality I want you to see. Regeneration now is the secret work of God. If you're in John, would you flip over to John chapter 3? We'll see here that regeneration is a secret work of God. Look at verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, this is the, the story where Nicodemus comes and he has some questions for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What doctrine does that point to? 
That's the doctrine of regeneration. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Regeneration then is a secret work of God. No one's ever seen the wind, right? It's a secret work of God. But I want you to also see that it's a a sovereign work of God. It's a secret work of God, but it's also a sovereign work of God. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is to say, God the Holy Spirit regenerates whom he will. He regenerates whoever he will. Number four, it gets really exciting. Regeneration gives guilty people a new inclination. That is, he gives them desires that previously did not exist in an unregenerate state. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, there's this marvelous promise of the new covenant. It's stated as follows, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When the Holy Spirit regenerates you, you become a totally new person. You move from guilty to innocent, and now you have a whole new set of desires that previously were not existent. Number five, which is related to number four, regeneration gives guilty people a new ability. That is, they have a freedom now that did not exist in an unregenerate state. Romans 8, 7, and 8, Paul says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does, not, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What Paul is doing is he is pointing to the reality of a sinner who has not yet received grace. That sinner can't believe God. That sinner can't obey God. That sinner can't worship God. That sinner despises God. Number six, and finally, I want you to see that the basis of regeneration in 1 Peter 1, 3, is the mercy of God. One theologian says this about mercy. He calls it a divine quality by which God faithfully keeps his promises and maintains his covenant relationship with his chosen people despite their unworthiness and unfaithfulness. Simply put, God gives us what we don't deserve. It was a few weeks ago, one of the children, and I honestly can't remember who it was, a a child at Christ Fellowship, came up and said to me, Hey, Pastor Dave, how you doing? And I said, Good. And the look was like, it was horrific. It kind of went. And I went, What's wrong? And this amazing little theologian looked at me and said, I thought you were going to say better than I deserved. I said, Wow, you got me. You got me. When God gives us mercy, he gives us what we don't deserve. You see, any time you believe that God owes you mercy, you've completely ignored the meaning of what it means for God to be merciful. He gives us what we don't deserve. I want to ask, as we've looked at these six mind-blowing realities concerning the doctrine of regeneration, what is your response Are these just words on a screen? Are these just words that you write on a page? Or does it shock you? Does it surprise you? Does it repel you? Or I hope the final response is what's happening with all of you. Does it it take your breath away? Does it cause you to well up in worship and wonder as you consider the living God and what he's done for fallen sinners? Now look again closely at how Peter how he responds to the reality of the new life. And I think, if you haven't figured this out by now, I think in word pictures, sometimes they're a little bit crazy, but I think of Peter climbing 29,000 plus feet to the summit of Mount Everest. He gets to the top. He's got his oxygen mask on. He gets to the top and he considers the reality of verse 3 and he, he throws off the oxygen mask just for a second and he says, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He knows that whoever God chose in eternity past, that God regenerates. And he glories in that truth. He revels in this reality. He delights in this theological truth. How could he do any less? But likewise, how can we do any less? This is the reality of the new life. But move with me to the second pillar as we move from the reality of the new life to the results of the new life. And as we explore the results of the new life, there are three very specific results uh, that occur in the heart of a person who has been regenerated. Remember, this person moves from guilty to innocent. This person moves from not having any ability to love, worship, or serve God to having all those abilities now. There are three results, and I consider this like like results or facets on a diamond. You look at a diamond and all the beautiful angles on a diamond. Here are the three results. Number one, a living hope. The first result is a living hope. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you haven't picked it up by now, let me restate it. And it's going to sound like I'm being overly dogmatic, and that's because I am. This is a reality that that we see time and again in the word of God. Here it is. People without Christ do not possess hope. People without Christ do not possess hope. As I said earlier, they may live as if they have hope. The expressions on their faces may give glimpses or traces of hope, but in the final analysis, people without grace do not possess hope. Listen to the way Paul says this in Ephesians 2.12, and this is taken from the New Living Translation. He says, In those days you were living apart from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. Now listen, he says, you lived in this world without God and without hope. If you question that truth that the word of God makes abundantly clear, I want to share a story with you. I read a story in recent days about a young man who produced a 2,000 page document. I don't know what you think about when you hear 2,000 page document. I was speaking with a mom this morning who said her daughter wrote a couple pages. What was it, Karen? 13 pages and 21 pages, something like that. Like, man, that's, that's some writing, right? That's, that's some big writing for a college student. Now think about this, 2,000 pages. So I don't know about you, but I have a hard time computing that. So I went to find the newest, biggest book that I had recently received. Anyone ready to do a book report? Or lift weights. Jessica, it's coming at you right afterwards. I, I see you shaking your head. No, this, no, you do this, right? You would like it. So this book, including scripture indexes, includes about 1,260 pages. So imagine a book almost twice that big. So this young man who liked to fancy himself as a nihilist, that is, he embraced the, the philosophical worldview that said there is no hope. He produced this 2,000-page suicide note, and he ended his life on the steps of a church on the campus at Harvard University. See, the first result that comes from regenerating grace is hope. But it's not just any hope. It's not fleeting hope. It's not hope that comes one day and leaves another. Notice what Peter says about it. He says it's, A living hope. It's a living hope. This is a living hope, which one writer says is a confident expectation of the life that is to come. This is a hope that is tightly tethered and anchored to the word of God. Listen to how that hope is expressed in Psalm 42. David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. 
He says in Psalm 42, 11, why are you cast down? Like, can I ask for a show of hands? How many of you have ever been cast down? And you say, well, I have no idea what that means. How many of you have ever been depressed? How many of you have never been depressed? We've all been there. The psalmist has been there. It's one of the things I love about the scripture. When a writer's bummed out, he says, I'm bummed out. When someone came up to him and said, hey, how you doing there? Doing just fine. He didn't say that. He would say something like this. Why are you in turmoil within me? He's talking to himself. And he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 119, 166. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Lamentations 324. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Old Testament, who's the him? It's Jesus Christ. And we learn that the basis of regeneration in verse 3 is the great mercy of God. But Peter goes further. And now we come to the great truth of Easter. He goes further and he explains that the means of regeneration is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How is it that the Holy Spirit can regenerate guilty people who don't deserve it? The answer is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One writer says, The resurrection of Christ from the dead secures for his people both new resurrection bodies and new spiritual life. Amen to that. A man by the name of Viktor Frankl, some of you have read his book. He's a man who spent three years at Auschwitz. And the decisive factor for his hope, or for his survival really, was the hope for the future. He actually made it through Auschwitz because he believed that there was hope in his family and his friends and his career. That's what enabled him to endure those brutal days at Auschwitz. And so, like Frankel, the Christ follower also sets his or her hope in the future. But the Christian hope is not merely in friends or family or a career. The Christian hope is set squarely on our eternal home, which is found with the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to the second powerful result which is an inheritance, an inheritance. Look at verse 4. Peter continues, to an inheritance, and we'll describe that in a moment. We want to look at the features of the inheritance here. And there are many. The Bible says, because we have received an inheritance, we are co-heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen. Ephesians 1.14 says, because we have received an inheritance, that inheritance is guaranteed. How much is guaranteed in our world? Not very much. Not very much. But one thing that is ironclad is the inheritance that is ours in Christ. And then notice as you read through verse 4, there are several qualities that Peter uses to describe this inheritance. He says, it is imperishable which means it's not subject to death. It's not subject to death. He says it's undefiled, which means it's unpolluted, it's unsoiled, it's undefiled by sin. He says it's unfading, which means it never loses, it loses its strength, it never fades away. He says it's kept in heaven for you, a term that means to guard or to keep. And one of my favorites, he says it's guarded by the very power of God. This is actually a military term that the Apostle Peter uses. It's as if God stands guard outside the door of your salvation, and he promises to secure your salvation. Listen, the same power will accompany Christ when he returns in glory. The same power overshadowed the Virgin Mary. The same power commands unclean spirits. The same power that has authority over demons and disease. The same power that Peter refers to created and upholds everything in this universe. This is the same power that, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Dr. Matthew Barrett 
recently wrote a book entitled None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. And Dr. Barrett says in that book that the same infinite power of the Almighty that raised Jesus from the tomb is also at work in every person who believes. Now think about that. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you face this week or this month or this year, realize this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the same resurrection power that, that burst Jesus Christ out of that grave, that resurrection power is a part of your life as well. The same infinite power of the Almighty that raised Jesus from the tomb is also at work in us who believe. There's a third thing that we see here. We have seen the first result of the living hope. The second result is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Guarded by the very power of God. Kept in heaven for you. Finally, notice salvation. Verse 5. Salvation. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And here's something that's interesting is if you are a Christian, if you are saved, you have not yet received the fullness of your salvation. It is promised, but it is not yet fully possessed. That's why Peter says it's ready to be revealed in the last time. One day we will receive our salvation in all its fullness, all to the praise of his glory. Paul the Apostle says it like this in Colossians chapter 1. That he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember the truth point? I'm going to expand on it just a little bit. That guilty people need new life, which produces hope and inheritance and final salvation. Young people, that's the question mom and dad are going to ask you. And I'll say, Guilty people need new life, which produces hope and inheritance and final salvation. I want you to remember as we close that Peter is writing to a group of persecuted Christians. He's writing to Christians who are suffering. He's also writing to Christ followers here in our church family. And so when pain seizes your soul, and I'm referring to physical pain, emotional pain, realize this. I have been granted new life. I have been granted new life. I have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for me and guarded by the power of God. My mom and dad were gracious enough to help Doreen and I purchase a graduation present for our daughter, Abby, who graduates in a few weeks. And so we, along with grandpa and grandma, got her a car a few days ago. And one of the things that we learned about the car is it's got this amazing warranty. Five years, 60,000 miles. Isn't that pretty, that's pretty amazing. Look at this warranty. That makes five years, 60,000 miles seem like an eighth of a peanut. That's nothing. That's nothing. But here as believers in Christ, we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us and guarded by the very power of God. The salvation that God has granted will be revealed in the last day when Christ returns in glory. Here's the question as we conclude our service. Have you received this new life? Do you know what it's like to live in light of the truth of the resurrection? You see, the Lord Jesus came. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And he went all the way to the cross with no hidden agendas, no sinful agendas. He was and is perfect. The way I like to put it is is as follows. He lived a life that we could never live. And he died a death that you all deserve to die. And he died the death that I deserve to die. For believers on this Easter morning, the word of God has good news for you as well. God is calling you to, to cast all your hope and future exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
on your risen Savior, on your resurrected King. And so when cancer strikes, you cast your hope on the risen Christ. When financial struggle ensues, you cast your hope on the risen Christ. When your marriage begins to crumble, or even if your marriage fails, you cast your hope on the risen Christ. When your friends betray you, you cast your hope on the risen Christ. When discouragement settles in like that brutal London fog, you cast your hope on the risen Christ. When persecution hits, and it will hit in the days to come, you cast your hope upon the Savior. See, guilty people need a new life which produces hope and inheritance and final salvation. I want to leave you this morning with Peter's fresh perspective. He praises God in chapter 1 for electing some to salvation in eternity past. He praises God for regenerating sinners. He praises God for granting hope to the people of God. He praises God for granting this imperishable undefiled inheritance to the people of God and for guaranteeing final salvation to the people of God. How can he do any less than to praise and worship God, which is why he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But to bring it home this morning, how can we do any less? Are you one of God's people this morning? Do you have new life? Are you living in light of the resurrection? I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning. If you've never come to Christ in faith and you you tell Jesus, Lord Jesus, I understand that you lived the life that I could never live and you died a death that I deserve to die. I understand that what you accomplished on the cross is the sole reason that I can have right standing with the living God. And so I turn from my sin and Jesus, I trust in you. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hope that we have because Jesus is a risen Savior. Lord, what a, what a pleasure it is to, to have this hope, to live this hope, to, to preach this hope, to teach this hope, and to share this hope with people who need to receive it. Lord, we all confess, those of us who are followers of Jesus, that there is a time in our lives, some in the not-too-distant past, when we were guilty, guilty, guilty. The vanity plate of our lives said one word on it. It said guilty. Thank you that you have granted forgiveness in Christ. Thank you that we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that you would do a a marvelous work in someone's heart today. I pray that you would draw someone to yourself. And on this Easter Sunday, that this would be a, a fresh beginning for someone as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live in light of the glorious resurrection of Jesus.